0: This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Cavalry Audio
0: Rebecca Gardeguay had just punched off the clock. She was a phone solicitor for a carpet cleaning company that was located by SeaTac Airport. She was anxious to get home after a long day of calls. A winter chill was in the air. She blew into her hands for warmth as she stood at the bus stop on Pacific Highway, waiting. It began to rain. It was then that she decided to stick out her thumb. It was November 1982, just three months after the river victims had been found.
2: So your recollection of the events are fairly clear?
3: I just got off work that day. I was only 19 also.
4: You were working where?
3: At Quality Carpet Cleaners. Okay. I was telephone soliciting. And I just got off work and I went to the bus stop to come home.
4: And where was the location of that bus stop?
3: 200th and Pacific Highway south, near the 7-Eleven. And um, it was starting to rain, so I thought I could get home faster by hitchhiking. So I stuck my thumb out and immediately got a ride. He pulled up and he looked at me really strange and I said, are you going to Burien? He said, yeah, kind of nodding his head. And so I got in the car, I opened the door myself and I sat down and I said, are you sure you're not a police? cop or anything. I don't know why I said that, but I just did because of what was going on with Green River. So uh, he showed me his ID. And I also saw something that said he had worked at Kenworth before. And I knew that he lived in Kent, Washington. And then he started to tell me about getting prosecuted for picking up a prostitute who was working on vice then he told me about his son who was getting taken away by the court. And I just, I noticed, you know, he wasn't really talking to me. He was just going on and on with these things that were happening to him. And so then I said, do you date? And he says, yeah, sometimes. And I said, well, a blowjob's $20. And he said, okay. And I go, I know the spot a little ways down the road. And he goes, okay, we'll go down there. So we kept driving a little bit, and then we turned the car around about where the Super 8 Motel is on Pacific Highway. And then we drove down to about 204th and Pacific Highway, and we went west to a vacant lot behind some mobile homes. And uh, he drove way, way in the back in the woods, which... I didn't usually, you know, go that far. And we were discussing in the car where we were going to do this and everything, and he didn't want to. In the car, he wanted to go up in the woods. And I finally agreed, and I went up there.
0: Rebecca says the man seemed harmless but agitated. He had shared with her that he'd just been to court for a charge of soliciting prostitution she felt like he was looking to take his anger out on someone.
3: He felt like everybody was out to get him that day. Like he wasn't doing nothing good. Like everybody, you know, the law was just totally out to destroy his life.
4: Once you're driving down the street and you uh, pull into the area that you showed us off the 204th, and he pulled his vehicle, he said into the there was a kind of a bank, an embankment area of where you walked up. He pulled his, he headed straight into the embankment area. What, kind of, what happened in the car then?
3: He was looking around, you know, as if he was checking to see if anybody was in sight or looking. But how much light was, daylight was there at that time? About a half hour left of daylight. Kind of dusk light? Yeah. It was light, but it wasn't dark.
0: So she followed And she found him waiting for her in the trees.
3: And the whole time, you know, I had this feeling in my gut. I just wanted to get this over with and get out of there.
4: And when you followed, how far ahead of him was the man?
3: Well, he was already standing there waiting for me as I got up there.
4: So he was facing you when you came up. Right. And he had his... Shorts. Shorts down. Yes. Did he have... These were jogging shorts or men's boxer shorts or...
3: just regular... Uh, P.E. shorts. Okay.
4: And did he have any other underwear on?
3: I don't think so. I'm not sure. Um, I never really looked, you know.
4: Did he have any other clothing on?
3: I remember him taking his T-shirt off, but I didn't see him do it. So,
4: then you engage in the act. You had mentioned to us that you thought it was strange that when you were about, when you were giving him a blowjob, that he was, fl- did he have an erection?
3: No, it was, it was a...
4: Um, Just say it in your own words.
3: It was soft.
4: Okay. And did, did he ever, have, did, at, at any time, did he ever have an erection that you saw when he was with you?
3: No, I didn't see it. I didn't really get a chance after everything started. Then he hollers out to you. You mentioned that he grabbed your hair. I remember his hands were on my head, but he didn't grab my hair. He just put it down there for a minute on top of my head.
4: You mentioned yesterday that he had made a statement when you bit him. He said, what did he say to you when you
3: bit him? Oh, he goes, you bitch. You bit my cock. I go, no, I didn't. I never did that before. You don't know what you're talking about. And that's what started the whole thing. And then the next minute, he did use his elbow to choke me. That's how he got me down. I know that. He got me down like that. His arm and elbow. After he had me like that, you know, he had me face down in the ground. And I was getting smothered into the grass and dirt.
2: Do you know what a police-type choke is? Chokehold is. I, I showed you yesterday right. where the where your neck is in between the forearm and the upper arm of the of the, of the strangler, right? And the police-type chokehold is that how he originally that's had you? That's how
3: he did it. But that's how he got me down on the ground.
2: Okay. He claimed that you had bit his penis in the act of oral intercourse. He pushed you back, got you in what might best be described as a police chokehold, and you then went to the to the ground. Is that correct?
3: Okay. And I was being smothered into the grass and, and dirt leaves and I kept struggling and I was I was just going, What's happening, you know, to myself? This this never happened to me. After he got me in the ground, I somehow rolled over again and he had both hands on my neck and he was squeezing underneath my chin or my jaw. And uh, I couldn't even talk. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't do nothing. Nobody would have heard me scream, so I didn't bother to do that. I just kept struggling to get away, you know, basically. And I got loose somehow just because I was determined not to let nothing happen to me. So I just kept doing whatever I could. I'd kick him. You know, I have no idea exactly what I did, but I know I did something to make him stop. And then when he finally stopped for a second, I talked to him. And I spoke and I said, what are you trying to do this to me for? I go, I'll give you back your $20. I don't really need the money. I don't even know why I did this. All I have is my mother and my brother and myself. I go, if you kill me, they won't even know where I am. And so he stopped and he let me go. In that moment, I took my purse and I ran as fast as I could. And I, as I was going down the hill to get away from the woods, I seen him putting on his clothes and I just kept running faster and faster till I got to a mobile home. And I knocked on their door. I told them to let me in and they let me in and I seen him drive away. And when you said that he let you go, how, how do you mean, did he say, well, you can go or? No, he didn't say anything. He was just standing there Like in a daze,
4: he just stopped what he was doing. Yes, he totally
3: stopped. So you
4: assume that he was letting you go by him stopping his actions, right? But
3: I, if I would have stayed there, he probably would have kept on. But you know, I wasn't stupid, so I left.
4: Did he use any profanity during this time?
3: No, nothing I can remember. Maybe he did. I can't say that I remember. I. It was just too much for me to remember all that.
5: Had you
2: ever dated this man before? No. Have you seen him since that incident?
3: No, I haven't, but I... I could at least say that I... I was looking for him.
0: Rebecca vividly recalls the feeling that the man had lured her into those woods, and he really wasn't interested in a date.
3: Well, when we were in the woods, most people that I know get red, or they, their face looks different. Well, he, His face looked white, clammy, cold. His arms, everything was cold. His hands.
4: And this was during the time that he was attempting to strangle you. Yes. And you were fighting back, so both of you were, you know, uh,
3: fighting at that yeah. time. It seemed like his personality had clicked from the time that I he said I had bit him to the time that he had picked me up. He was a totally different person. He kind of made me think that if he did kill me, since he wasn't interested in me sexually before that, he probably would have tried to have intercourse if I was dead. Now,
4: what do you mean by you didn't believe that he was interested in you sexually? Well,
3: he's the only guy that never touched me at all or even wanted to look. I'm not saying that that was included, or, or but... Or the fact that
4: when you were he, having oral sex with him, he didn't have an erection either.
3: He didn't even have that, right? So you That's, thought that he was
4: totally disinter, disinterested in you sexually. Right. And you thought that he, I, would, he probably wanted to do something... I maybe felt out. like
3: I, I was his little revenge toy or something. You know, he was taking all his anger out on me.
4: But during that time, he never said anything to you while he was doing it? Like, he no. never called no. anybody's was, name or anything like that? he was so like
3: quiet. That. He was just
4: making sure that he could finish it. Did he at any time try to uh, tear your clothes or anything no. like that?
3: He never pulled on my clothes or anything.
4: But by the time that you were in an altercation,
2: you had all your clothes on. He had no clothes on.
3: I can't figure that out, why he would want his clothes to be off.
2: Let me ask you this, Rebecca, is that a normal thing for you to uh, experience? And I'm not suggesting that you had many, many, many experiences with men, but you what? certainly have told us that you've had a couple of experiences with men. Is it a normal experience for a man that you might meet to take all his clothes off?
3: No, not for a blowjob. Okay. That's out of the ordinary.
2: Okay. Rebecca, yesterday, after uh, Detective Griffin and I uh, returned you to the office, I showed you a series of photographs in a, what's commonly referred to as a photo montage. Do you recall that? Did you do you recall picking a photo in that photo montage?
3: Yes, I do. Do
2: you recall uh, what number it was?
3: Number five.
2: That was number five. And what would you say about number five? Was uh, in other words, what I'm asking you are, what do you what do you what can you tell us about number five? Is he a familiar person, or is that the person we're talking photo about?
3: Photo two years ago, and I still remember his face.
2: Is the picture you saw yesterday, photo number 5, is that the man that assaulted you in 1982? That
3: is the man.
2: There's no doubt in your mind about that? No
3: doubt. Okay.
0: From Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Shadow Girls, an in-depth investigation into the victims of the Green River Killer. You're listening to Episode 4, The Reckoning. That assault happened in November of 1982. Rebecca didn't report the attack because she was worried. She didn't think that she'd be believed, and she didn't want her family to find out. Noelle Gomez from OPS shares what it was like back then for prostituted people. When I was in it, if you were in it, you were trash, period,
3: to everybody in your social group, right? Except for the other people that were doing it, too. That's a problem.
0: This was a problem, and it was something that GRK exploited. He believed prostituted people didn't trust the police and that they didn't want to be labeled as a prostitute, so they didn't share what happened to them. But in December of 1984, Rebecca overcame that fear because she knew, she knew in her gut that this stranger would hurt someone else. So she called the Green River Task Force She wasn't formally interviewed until September 25th, 1986.
2: Rebecca, the reason that we are here today is in regard to an assault that you reported to the King County Police uh, Officer Ralph McAllister in 1984. Uh, The assault, we understand, took place in October of 1982. Is that accurate? No, it's not. I'm it sorry. Go,
3: November.
2: November of 1982. That's when the assault took place? Okay. Now, uh, in 1984, you made the Green River Task Force uh, aware of this assault. Uh, there was some investigation done at that time. The uh, man that assaulted you has been identified and has admitted to the assault. And Detective Griffin and I uh, contacted you yesterday at your house, and you accompanied us out to the crime scene, and uh, you basically went over the incident with us yesterday. Is that correct? Yes. What we're here for today, Rebecca, is to, uh, to obtain from you uh, a formal tape-recorded statement of that event and your recollection of the, of the incident.
0: It took two years to interview Rebecca. Was it because she didn't seem credible when she went to the task force in 1984? Now that you've heard her interview, what do you believe? Brandon Morgan, the producer of this show, had a strong reaction to her taped interview with police in 1986.
6: Probably like many of you, you could try and poke a lot of holes in her story. Like, what's more what's more likely? That this woman is lying or that she was able to get away from someone that no one else was able to get away from, right? But it just didn't seem believable.
0: In February of 1985, A task force detective would interview the truck painter regarding Rebecca's allegations. He admitted that he had dated Rebecca, but he claimed that he choked her as a reflexive reaction after she bit his penis. She
5: bit me and I choked her.
0: Brandon had to really take a look in the mirror over the weeks and months following this recognition that Rebecca had been telling the truth.
6: Playing that woman's interview, which just seems so suspect to me, just hearing it on its face. I'm like, mm-hmm. she's completely fucking lying about this. Right? Mm-hmm. And then and then turning the tables because I felt a little bit of shame when ah. I heard corroborate. I was like,
0: mm-hmm. I'm a fucking douche. OK. These moments are something we hope to continue discussing throughout the series.
6: I think anybody listening to it isn't going to believe it. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. And I know, but and and, and like, I just
0: I just get so much <laughs> delight that I've caused you so much anguish and grief. I mean, honestly, it really I, did. I can tell. It really
6: did because I feel like just a normal shitty white American male that doesn't believe a woman. You know what I mean? And so, okay, I had to face that. I had to reconcile yeah. that as yeah. a father of daughters, right? And mm-hmm. and some of my best friends are women. You know, mm-hmm. um, so I've, I've really had to, i really had to think about it a lot.
0: As for now, I don't have an answer as to why the truck painter wasn't prosecuted for attempted murder in 1986 for Rebecca's attack. It's my understanding that there's no statute of limitations on attempted murder. But a King County prosecutor would later release a report stating, quote, According to the detective, Rebecca told him that she did not want to pursue the case and the truck painter was not charged. But this doesn't seem like what she was saying in her recorded statement in 1986.
3: Do you have anything else to add? Well, if there's anything that I can do to get my relief, um, I would like possibly to prosecute or press charges. Would you,
4: if this person were charged, would you be willing to prosecute? Would you assist in the prosecution of this individual for the assault on you?
3: Yes, I will, because... There could be another person that he does this to. And I know that he got a lot of kicks out of getting away with it.
0: It's just another kick to the gut that these puzzle pieces didn't fit together enough to make an arrest at that time. That
7: As the 80s went, went on you know it got it got tougher because we had 40,000 tip sheets oh my gosh 10,000 items of evidence and in a world today when you mention that you know young people go well that's you know that's manageable well no we didn't have computers (laughs) and people are shocked when when you say that we were managing this case in the beginning on three five three by five note cards
3: that's incredible
7: right and and so we had no we had no computers we um we did eventually, in 1986, get what they call a VAX computer, which took up the space of a classroom um, at an average school, an average school classroom, and uh, it contained data. We could only put input data. It didn't make any comparisons or, or uh, correlations between, ev- uh, between information. We had to print the information out, lay the printouts on the floor, and go through each printout with a highlighter to see if we had similar names, addresses, birth dates and license plate numbers on those sheets. So if we had three, if we had, for example, people arrested for patronizing a prostitute on one list, people who assaulted women on another list and someone who was registered to a pickup truck in Washington state, and we went down those three lists, if we found a name on all three lists, that would be a priority A. Even if we found a name or a birth date that was similar on two of the lists, that would be a, prior, a priority A um, suspect. So it was... Um, so
0: you needed to, over- if you had a like a simple database, it would have really helped narrow down these 40,000 tips.
7: Well, yeah, I mean, imagine today, type in all the information, type in a name, and it immediately checks all the other information in your database and spits out all the comparisons, you know, within a minute. (laughs) Instead of us having to do it, it took taking all day to try to come up with those comparisons.
0: The task force still didn't have that database that would help put the pieces together. By the end of 1982, 14 young women and girls in King County were missing, vanished without a trace. The Shadow Girls will continue after a word from our sponsors. And now, back to the Shadow Girls. On May 3, 1983, 29-year-old Carol Christensen had just finished her waitressing shift at the Barn Door Tavern on the sea Strip. Carol was a young mother raising her little girl, and money was tight. Carol said her goodbyes that day, waving to her co-workers as she walked out the door. That would be the last time anyone saw Carol alive. Five days later, a family was foraging for mushrooms in a rural area near Maple Valley. That's just 30 minutes southeast of Pack Highway. They noticed something strange up ahead. Was that a mannequin? One can imagine the family, as they crept closer, warily, approaching what appeared to be a fully-dressed mannequin laid out on the forest floor. It was quiet as they approached, the crunching of the leaves beneath their feet. Why was there a bag over the mannequin head? As they got even closer, the image coming into view wasn't becoming any clearer why was a dead fish on the mannequin's breast why did she have a sausage in her hand why was the other hand holding a green wine bottle that had been tucked between her legs so many questions would go unanswered that day but one thing would become imminently clear as a forager in the group picked up a stick and lifted the paper sack revealing the cloudy eyes of a dead young woman with the body of another fish beneath her chin. The identification of Carol Christensen was instantaneous. The killer had tucked her ID in her breast pocket for detectives to find. Was Carol another victim of the GRK? She had been last seen leaving her job on Pacific Highway. When the task force arrived at the scene, Carol's body was still in full rigor mortis, which meant She had been recently killed. Later, at her autopsy, the cause of death was determined to be strangulation by a ligature. Most of the victims of the GRK had been found stripped of their clothes and possessions. Many victims were found with their legs splayed. Carol, like Mary Meehan, was different. Carol was fully clothed, with her ID in her pocket. What was that message, if any? Many believed that Carol wasn't a victim of the Green River Killer, that she'd been murdered by someone else. The posing of her body threw investigators for a loop, and that she was fully dressed, as opposed to the GRK's other victims, who were covered with brush in a shallow grave or in a river. But there had been anomalies, as was the case with Mary Meehan, who had been fully buried with her unborn child. What was the GRK trying to tell them? The FBI profile had postulated that the killer would pose his victims. Two of the river victims had rocks inserted into their bodies, and they had found a similar-sized rock with victim remains at the South Airport cluster. Was that a posing or a signature? Clearly, Carol's body had been posed for an audience. The fish, the sausage, the wine. Was the killer trying to communicate some kind of a religious message to the task force? That had been suggested by the profile as well, that he was murdering prostituted people as part of some religious crusade. One thing was obvious. The killer intended for Carol's body to be found. But why? More questions added to a growing list of so many unanswered questions. What investigators would come to find out, so many years later, was that the killer cared for Carol. At least that's what he tried to make it seem like at first. But they would find out that was all lies. More game-playing from a remorseless, psychopathic, pathological liar. He just wanted to mess with the task force.
5: Christensen is the, the one stands out more than most of them. Why? Well, because I put clothes on her and the, uh, the, 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 put the fish on her and put the sausage on her in the bottle.
6: Okay, we we heard the bullshit story. Why don't you tell us? God damn it, think carefully about this because we want it to be the truth.
5: Why did I kill her? Because I hated to prostitute. to get my my, uh, sexual drive out of it and to to, uh, snuff her life out by my arms, my hands, or the You were asked for one special thing. One 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 thing. One thing. Snuff her life out. You said, Carol Christian said, Yes. One thing, Tell us one thing about that. Well, why does she stand out in your mind? Because well, she's the one that uh, the only one that had clothes on. Is... Why does she be, why is she the only one that has clothes on? Why did why was that something special? That was something special May I don't know what the maybe it was my uh, May Day present for you guys or something. I don't know what it was, but Why the clothes on Carol? To throw you off and that was the entire reason. As far as I remember, just uh, uh, just halfway through the killings, to throw to throw you guys off, knowing that she's going to be found within a couple of days, is where I took her. How do you know that? Originally, I was going to call in a call in where the site was, but I didn't know anybody to call. That was in my mind, and I'd call in a couple of days later, and tell her she's the body there. And Why the clothes on though? You could have left the body on naked somewhere where it'd be found. Well, it'd throw you off as a as a uh, Green River wouldn't be on a Green River list. I mean, by way of taunting you guys, Conning you guys. Now you got one with clothes on, and all the rest of them are all naked. Now I'm going to throw one with the clothes and all this the fish, the sausage, the bottle, all stuff that you, you know, spend your time looking for DNA and stuff on that stuff. The clothes, Gary. I have a hard time believing that you were worried about DNA in 1983. I was worried. Fingerprints. There's read more about that. There's nothing on the bottle. Why wasn't there anything on the bottle? Because I washed it off after I drank the wine.
0: You will hear more of the GRK's confession later in the series. Not hearing his voice now is purposeful. So often, his horrendous crimes take center stage, while the victim stories are relegated to the shadows. Because these these people were were in the life or believed to be in the life or on the street, they weren't considered very valuable. So he got all of the attention, really. Um, And that was very kind of glorified in many ways. People very interested in that. And, you know, we all
8: are. That's kind of human, too. But um, we wanted to put the focus on the girls and the
0: women. Detective Dave Reichert.
7: Only thing I think part of the message when I do these, I, I take the time to do them because uh, I really want people to think about the families and, and think about, you know, it's the best way to do this is, is sort of a put yourself in their place. Imagine losing your child at 15, 14 years old and and uh, and then finding out that some monster had taken her and done these evil things to her and then killed her. So remember the families of of the victims.
0: The discovery of the skeletal remains of three more missing girls out the South Airport Cluster in the fall of 1983 galvanized the political will to fully fund the Green River Task Force in January of 1984 to the relief of the investigators.
7: It takes a toll on you. The memories of every victim, every body that I recovered, uh, was at almost every one of the scenes. And I can close my eyes, and I can tell you the positions of the bodies, what was left of their remains. And everywhere I drive almost in this northwest, uh, especially around King County and up towards the Cascades, I can point out every site that I was at. It brings back those memories. And so during that time, uh, I was totally obsessed with catching this guy. There was no way. In fact, there was a point where the command uh, staff was worried that I was too deeply involved and actually thought that I needed to take a break from the case, and I fought, I fought to stay on the case. It would have hurt me more to be removed from the investigation.
0: The Green River Task Force was staffed with 50 investigators who were recruited from different departments, their positions minted with the issuance of green and yellow Green River Task Force jackets. Another major development in the investigation at this time was funding for what was then considered a state-of-the-art computer, which meant investigative time was needed to input all that data collected from the -the boots-on-the-ground officers with those crookbooks to the thousands upon thousands of 3x5 note cards, paper reports, transcribed interviews, arrest records, lab reports, and more. Getting that information into the computer could help them separate the wheat from the chaff, which included those that had inserted themselves into the investigation, like the so-called psychic private investigator, Barbara Kubik-Patton. I'll give you an example. Here's a task force detective entry dated December 1st, 1983. It's representative of how tips from psychics were reviewed and tracked. The detective writes, Introduced by Barbara Cubic Patton to a psychic from San Francisco and Alaska, contact was made with the psychics who predicted there would be another murder on December 13, 1983 at 12.30 a.m. at a location where the psychics predicted that the murder would occur. The detective would add a follow-up note a few days later. Surveillance was conducted on both Monday and Tuesday nights and failed to reveal any evidence to substantiate the predictions. And much of the investigative work would actually take a back seat in the coming months with the discovery of skeletal remains at two different green spaces in as many days. Even with the Enhanced Green River Task Force that was stocked with the best and brightest in law enforcement in January 1984, they were still playing catch-up to a killing machine. Detective Tom Jensen.
9: When I first joined the task force in 1984, the, the, the system, the filing system was uh, broken, I guess is a good way to put it. It was, it did involve a lot of card files and uh, non computerized things they had attempted to computerize something with an apple machine once and they lost it all so that they didn't have any 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 computerization of the of the investigation and it was I, I think there was probably 14 to 17 cases that we were following at the time both as as uh homicides and missing persons and so there was a lot of file material that uh was basically if you did, if you didn't have it in your head, you didn't know where to find it and early on it was recognized that we were going to need some kind of computer to, to organize all this material and that occurred probably about the same time in the spring of nineteen eighty four we found a lot of victims the remains
0: on march thirty first nineteen eighty four a nature lover was enjoying the pastime of collecting mushrooms, pacific Northwest jewels like chicken-of-the-woods and chanterelles. He was foraging just off of Highway 410, which is roughly 30 miles southeast of downtown Seattle. And like so many locals before, he saw something poking out of the forest fauna. His eyes widened in disbelief. Was that the jawbone of a human being? It was. The following day, on April 1st, Another nature lover was out and about near Star Lake. This is about a mile away from where the river victims had been found when he happened upon a human skull. We'll be right back with the Shadow Girls after a word from our sponsors. And now we continue with the Shadow Girls. The grim reality was that the Green River Task Force knew only too well how to proceed because of their work at the South Airport Cluster. Detectives roped off an area the size of a football field. Cadaver dogs arrived with their handlers. Explorer scouts were summoned. Green and yellow-jacketed task force members helped bushwhack blackberry bushes, clearing out brush and garbage. The skull had been found by a popular illegal dump site, which made collecting evidence that much more challenging at Star Lake. How do you decide what was evidence and what was garbage? This was a huge issue when you think about the extraordinary lengths that investigators went through to collect trace and physical evidence. Nothing was too big or small. Even birds' nests were collected. Maybe there was an errant string that belonged to the killer that a passing bird had then woven into its nest that thread could be a unique fiber that would link them to the killer. They collected animal feces, too. And it wasn't uncommon to see investigators on their hands and knees with magnifying glasses and tweezers. Another thing about this location is that, like Fragger Road that wound alongside the Green River, Star Lake Road was a lightly traveled road that connected to Pacific Highway. Was this proof that the GRK was a local? The excavation at Star Lake would lead to the recovery of Terry Milligan, Alma Smith, Dolores Williams, Carrie Roy, Gail Matthews, and Sandra Gabbert. That jawbone that was found near Maple Valley would later be identified as the remains of 16-year-old Debbie Abernathy, the first victim recovered in what would be called the Enumclaw Cluster. The discovery of two sites back to back was the spark that lit a powder keg of outrage, fear, and anger which had already been brewing over the past two years. The victims' families, friends, community members, and organizations marched in the streets of Seattle to protest. 400 strong, demanding to know how many young, vulnerable women and girls had to die before they would catch the killer. Then, Green River Task Force Captain Frank Adamson weighed in.
10: I think that any killer is dangerous to all of us, everybody. I think that no one can become complacent about a person that's willing to kill another human being.
0: Detective Dave Reichert.
7: This affected the detectives personally, when um, each night you go home wondering who uh, or if or when the next person would be killed. And every day you'd go in expecting and hoping and praying to find that one piece of evidence that would lead to uh, his arrest so that people could walk freely, Um, these young girls would not be victims anymore.
0: Members of the task force knew how vulnerable the victims were. Detective Tom Jensen. Their background
9: was that they were runaways, and nobody ever asked, had the chance to ask them why. Well, we didn't, anyway. All we had to do was rely on people that may have known them. They were they were running away from something in, in a lot of cases, and, and what they ran away from, uh, or what they ran away to, was probably more volatile than what they ran away from.
0: These task force detectives had been pulling apart their lives, trying to find connections and suspects over the last two years. They understood the frustrations of the families better than most, which fueled their work. But Detective Reichert says they were constantly being hit by the media and an apathetic public, a lethal combination in an already complicated investigation.
7: And we didn't solve it right away. Then there's intense pressure from the community actually came from the news media first to solve this case. What are you doing? Why aren't you solving it? What's the matter with you? Then the community starts to get frustrated with the lack of um, progress. And, you know, the the community, to be honest with you, was partially not at fault here, but uh, for, for not having the attention called to the case center because the victims were um people, young girls who were in the human trafficking world back then it was called prostitution, and they were with pimps on Pacific Highway South and downtown Seattle. And the average citizen driving to and from work or to the shopping center to the store and back home again didn't see those little girls, although there were hundreds of them out there. They weren't visible to the community because you know, part of it was they lived in an underworld. Didn't want to be seen, but the other part is, when they were seen, really the community didn't want to see them. They were there, but they wanted to pretend like they weren't there.
0: And at the end of the day, although these girls weren't their daughters by blood, they couldn't help but feel the weight of their suffering.
7: Yeah, in 1982, we have those initial bodies. We, we are, we're gearing up. We think we're going to solve this case. We're collecting evidence. We're at first, you know, identifying the victims, meeting with the families, having to deliver this bad news that their daughters have been found. Uh, they were missing, they knew they were missing, but they're not alive. And so that emotion starts to, I mean, that started then, but that emotion built throughout the 19 years because we continue to have to go to families' homes and say, we found your daughter, but she's she's not alive. And the emotions that they went through were transferred to us. They would they they could be angry. They could pound on our chest. They would they would totally collapse and grab a hold of us and and send us to the floor with them. And and you know in, in an embrace that it, it, you know they wouldn't let go of us, just hanging on to something and. Oh my gosh! Can you uh, so, st-
0: can you stop there and just kind of describe one specific family that that ha- I mean that's so intense. Do you feel like equipped to handle that?
7: Uh, so I'm a Christian guy. I have a strong faith, so that's where I drew my strength from, and and uh, always felt confident and equipped to handle that sort of emotion. the The anger part was a tough one because you know they felt like we didn't do enough. We're, we weren't doing enough. Uh, but once they got to know us and they recognized the dedication and commitment that all the detectives had, it wasn't just me, every one of us who stayed there for so many years, Tom Jensen, Jim Doyen, Randy Mullinex, just to name a few, they they soon learned that we were not going to give up. That was, it, it was just something that I, I sort of felt very comfortable with, but I, I can't even say it was difficult. It was so, it, it's so hard to describe the Imagine doing it just once, but...
0: How many times did you have to go to a family and say they were a victim of the Green River Killer?
7: Scores. 10, 20, 30, 40. You know, after 10 years, you sort of...
0: yeah. And the frustration and anger because they felt like they were chasing a ghost. Do you remember having feelings about what you know? Seeing detectives and were they just hanged on, demoralized? The, the, the Green River detectives. Yeah,
4: they like,
10: worked. They worked their hearts out. When when we'd have you know, interactions with them, they they they, they were killing themselves. Uh, it ruined marriages. It ruined health, right? Um, it created as many problems as it solved. I mean, it was just an intense pressure cooker, right? I mean, and, and they they at that it's, at its height, remember they had Port of Seattle, Seattle. Uh, King County Sheriff's, It was they just poured their hat out. They were behind the eight ball and he was already moving on before the task force ever really got kicked in. And then of course, everybody says, now we have a task force and we're hunting him. And then what? What's the first thing you're gonna do if you know the cops are out there hunting you like crazy? And to get a lot more careful. You might not stop killing, but, but you know, and so, I mean, they they, they were, and then who do you hunt? You know, when, when it first started, they're finding these bodies, right? And I you know, how many millions of people live here? I mean, how do you find them? And it was, it was a horrible case.
0: But the GRK wasn't a ghost. They knew he was a living, breathing human being. They had found a tracker who had found a shoe print at the Starlight Cluster, and he'd left bodily fluids behind in the river victims and Carol Christensen. He was a faceless man hiding in plain sight who came out of the shadows just long enough to lure a vulnerable girl to her death. Over two years, the Green River Killer had sexually assaulted and murdered more than 40 other women. They were mostly 14 to 17 years old, innocent and vulnerable kids, and I remember that that made an impression on me when I was a kid back then. In 1984, at the height of the GRK's killing spree, I was 12 years old, living nearby, and soaking it all in. My mom was a news junkie. I don't remember specific newscasts back then, but I see a reel in my head today, and it shows body after body being recovered, and each of those discoveries made the news. As I've been working on this series, I have to catch myself. I just did it there. My child self always envisions the body bags I would see on the news, time after time, carried out of the green spaces on a metal carrier up to an awaiting morgue van. But the truth is, the only really intact bodies were the river victims and then Carol Christensen. The rest were skeletal remains. This is an important detail because so much of that evidence was lost just because of the nature of the Pacific Northwest environment. So many years later, so many documentaries and movies on the Green River Killer investigation, and yet in my mind, few capture... What I remember of the real fear in the community, particularly from 1982 to 1984, when news reports were constantly reporting that the remains of another young woman had been found. And so many reports of neighbors smelling something foul, which was enough to call in the cavalry. Was it another body that the Green River Killer had left? And those signature green and yellow jackets in neighborhoods across King County after getting calls from residents who smelled something? And dutifully, they would answer that call because they knew it had come to pass that so many human remains would be found times before. Just seeing those jackets, looking in a green space, was enough to alert the news media to the possibility of another victim of the GRK. And that would be enough for breaking news that day, even if they didn't find anything. The morbid reality of all those discoveries began with a sighting or a smell back in the early 80s. Remember that Little League field?
10: He dumped the bodies by a Little League field. And people playing the Little League games smelled them. They actually kept saying, what is this odor?
0: And the feeling. Why would a killer who seemingly didn't want to get caught choose a disposal site that would absolutely call the attention of locals? Was it because he craved the spotlight? Because he wanted the community to be in fear of him? After reviewing thousands and thousands of investigation pages of deputy logs, they tell a similar story. Reports from concerned citizens who felt compelled to call 911 because of the unmistakable odor of death. And officers dutifully responded to these calls, noses poised in the air, knowing full well that a horrible smell could lead to another disposal cluster. The smell of decay and rot during those times was the smell of hopelessness. It became the calling card of the Green River Killer. And it added to that feeling that he was... Everywhere and anywhere. There was a reason that the news was always on in our house. At the time, my mom's dream was to be the next Barbara Walters. And at 12 years old, I believed it was totally possible. My mom was attending the Ron Bailey School of Broadcasting in downtown Seattle, despite being on welfare with two kids. I don't even remember how she got there every day from Kent, with all the crappy cars she had to work with, my dad rarely paying child support. And welfare and food stamps just wasn't enough. I know these roots are what prompted me to become a journalist. Because my mom was denied entry. And because I've never forgotten the first-hand experience of the cruelty by adults in power. As I've worked on this case, these long-buried tapes started to replay. Memories of how my mother, my sister, and I were treated at the grocery store when using food stamps. This was back in the day when my mom would get these booklets with coupons. If you didn't rip out the coupons from the book in front of the cashier, they were considered invalid. My mom had a disability, a mysterious illness. We now know it's muscular dystrophy, where her hands crunched into claws, which meant she didn't have a lot of dexterity or strength, and it made ripping those coupons out nearly impossible. I dreaded those encounters every week my sister and I frantically helping her rip out the food coupons in front of the eye-rolling cashier, the lines stacking up behind us, praying that nobody from my school would see me. The judgment against a single mom on welfare with her two daughters was loud and clear. We were scum. But in spite of it, my mom was giving me the gift of another message, which I realize now saved me. She never gave up on her dreams of becoming a news anchor. When she got an internship at a country music station in Seattle, I was convinced this was the beginning of her journey, and it wouldn't be long before she was the next Barbara Walters. Watching the news was practice for her in our shabby low-income duplex, and the way that the victims were referred to stuck in my head. They were bad girls. They were described as runaways, street girls, hookers, prostitutes, who shouldn't have been out there, who chose to be out there. And here's Detective Larry Gross summing up what many people felt back then.
2: Not only picked the hookers because he may have a woman problem, but also because society ain't going to say a hell of a lot for girls that are on the street. Serves them right. Shouldn't be been out there in the first place.
0: At 12, I didn't even really know what prostitution was. Or if I did, it had no bearing on reality. But rather something I had picked up from one of my favorite movies in the 80s, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was the fourth highest-grossing live-action musical film of the 1980s and the top-grossing film of 1982. I loved Dolly Parton, then and now. I distinctly remember my mom's hero, Barbara Walters, and mine, Dolly Parton, locking horns in the early 80s.
8: Dolly, where I come from, what I have called you a hillbilly... If you had of, it would have been something very natural, but I would have probably kicked your shins or something. (laughs) No, actually. But when I think of hillbillies, (laughs) am I thinking of your kind of people? I think you probably are. Uh, The people that grew up where I was were the ones that you would consider the Little Abner people, Daisy Mae, and that sort of thing. They took that kind of uh, thing from people like us, but we were very proud people, people with a lot of class. It was country class, but it was a great deal of class, and uh, most of them... My people were not that educated, but they are very, very intelligent, good common sense, horse sense, we called it. Dolly, did you look like this when you were a kid? Not quite. I mean, you didn't have the the blonde wig, but when you went to school, when you were 11, 12, 13, was it this about you? Well, you mean uh, the full uh, figure? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, I thought that's what you meant. Well, actually, I've always been pretty well blessed uh, as a child, I grew up fast. Uh, other members of my family you know, have done the same.
3: My assistant asked me something, and I'm going to blame it on her because I wouldn't have had the nerve otherwise. Is it all you?
8: <laughs> well, I can't show you here. I don't tell her. I'll
3: well, take your
8: word for it. I get asked that question. I always answer that because people are in awe of the whole thing. And you know, a lot of people say I have it. I always say that if I hadn't have had it on my own, I'm just the kind of person that would have had me made. You don't have to look like this. You're very beautiful.
3: You don't have to wear the blonde wigs. You don't have to wear the extreme clothes, right?
8: No, it's, a, it's certainly a choice. I don't like to be like everybody else. I've often made this statement that I would never stoop so low as to be fashionable that's the easiest thing in the world to do so I just decided that I would do something that would at least get the attention once they got past the shock of the ridiculous way I looked and all that then they would see there was a parts of me to be appreciated I'm very real where it counts and that's inside and as far as the, my outlook on life and the way I care about people and the way I care about myself and the things that I care about but I just chose to do this and it's a show business is a money making joke and I've just always liked telling jokes, you know. But do you ever feel that you're a joke, that people make fun of you? Oh I know they make fun of me. But actually all these years the people, you know, have has thought the joke was on me, but it's actually been on the public. I know exactly what I'm doing and I can change it at any time. I make more jokes about myself than, than anybody. Because I enjoy I know like I say, I am sure of myself as a person. I'm sure of my talent. And I'm sure of, of my love and for life and that sort of thing. I'm very content. I like the kind of person that I am. So I can afford to piddle around and do around with makeups and clothes and stuff because I am secure with uh, myself.
0: Secretly, I remember wishing my mom was polished like Barbara, but dressed a little bit more like Dolly. In my little girl's eyes, it seemed like women who did so effectively got what they wanted. Apparently, I'm not the only little girl who got this message in the 1980s. The fine line of appearing sexy, but not too sexy. Or you're perceived as a slut and less intelligent. According to a recent study of the most popular television shows today, only 38% of the characters were girls, and 75% of the time, the girls were presented in sexually objectifying ways. Still at this time, the most viable suspect they had was that unemployed cab driver, Melvin Foster, who hadn't been eliminated as a person of interest. Remember, Foster had failed his polygraph repeatedly, and he said he knew all five of the River victims. Clearly, he had inserted himself into the investigation back in the summer of 1982. And while the recovery of so many victims was taking place, the task force was split, chasing down leads related to Foster, who they also continued to have under surveillance. After so much intense scrutiny and not being shy in front of the camera, Foster decided to push back. He contacted the media to share his situation. He felt he was being persecuted by the task force. Duff Wilson, the crime reporter for the Seattle PI back then, recalls spending the day with Foster.
11: A little bit later, you know, that uh, taxi driver
0: Melvin Foster?
11: Melvin Foster, I was uh, one of the reporters he, uh, he called to say the police were hassling him. So uh, I went there to, I think it's Lacey or somewhere around Tacoma, kind of hung out with him for uh, a day, basically. And the police or the county sheriffs were across the street. It was a semi-rural area. They were like 100 yards away. They had him under surveillance. They, they didn't make a secret of it. You know, he was a suspect.
0: Duff says the thing that sticks out the most in his mind about that day trip with the task force number one suspect was the uncomfortable realization that he could be in the company of a serial killer.
11: That was kind of weird because if he's the guy, there I am hanging out in his living room <laughs> and what kind of what kind of weapons might he have? And then we go out for a ride in his car and we wave at the at the cops as we're uh, as we're turning down the sheet and they follow us. I forget where we went Some local areas because he said he knew some of the women. That was one of the reasons he was a suspect, right? It turns out he's not the guy, but, and so that was kind of strange. That was the one uh, suspect that I, uh, I spent some time with.
0: Here's some audio from the mid 1980s recorded by detective Reichard. Essentially it's a rolling log that details his days. A lot of his time was spent alongside the volunteers who were inputting data into the computer.
1: Next entry, 12385, 0700 hours to 1300 hours. I reorganized the Bonner file. Next entry, 1300 hours, I attended the task force meeting. Foster strategy was again discussed. Detective, Detective Doyen advised that he and some proactive officers had seen Melvin Foster picking up a prostitute and getting a blowjob in Seattle. this state, he was followed home at 0, 0130 hours. Also discussed were the glass beads. According to Detective Kalen, they have now been found in the front seat of Melvin Foster's vehicle and also in the trunk.
0: The sheriff's office would deploy an undercover officer to buy that car that Foster was selling. Ultimately, they wouldn't find any forensic evidence linking him to the victims. Yet another distraction in the GRK investigation was the psychic investigator Barbara Cubic patton who had inserted herself into the case. Cubic patton believed that she had a psychic connection to one of the Green River victims, and because of that connection, was convinced that she would be able to find the killer. She had become so obsessed with the case that she'd become friends with Melvin Foster, the unemployed cab driver who had been at the top of the suspect list in the Green River investigation. Detective Tom Jensen and I discussed her role in the case and how Cubic Patton had told him that her psychic ability drew her to a place in the woods where she found the human remains of one of the GRK's victims. Sounds like there were so many people who injected themselves into this investigation over the years. Like I was kind of really surprised by the psychics. There was a woman that <laughs> came up and her and Melvin Foster were in this video together being interviewed. He's wearing this kind of fedora thing with a feather on it. And, and I think she actually ended up finding a body.
9: Right. That was barbecue barbecuing Patton. And uh, yeah, yeah, she I, I spent way too many hours on the phone with her. Yeah, she always had a story, and she did find one of the victims. We were actually down the road working another crime scene, and she she comes she would show up at these things all the time. And of course, she wouldn't she wasn't allowed beyond the, the yellow tape. But so at this in this particular time, she just went on down the road, and and she cl- always claimed that she was getting a a, me- a message from one of the other victims who had been discovered earlier, and. Uh, and that she told her she was told to walk into the woods. And...
0: Task Force Detective Tom Jensen says Barbara Cubic Patton was more than willing to share what she knew about Foster.
9: She was in constant contact with Mel- Melvin Foster, and at the time when Melvin was still uh, somewhat of interest, at least, or, or at least to her, um, she was always talking to him, and she would call up and report on what he was doing today, or what what he said, or things like that. Or what or what vision she had last night, particularly because I was I was one of the the people charged with investigating Foster. I had to listen to it, you know. So she was talking to a person of interest and and we had to listen to what maybe she had to offer based on what she'd heard from him.
0: Eventually the task force would ease up on Melvin Foster, but not entirely eliminate him as a suspect throughout the investigation.
9: He was under surveillance for a couple of months. It later turned out that one of the victims, I think it was Denise Bush, had disappeared during the time that he was under surveillance and we knew where he was. So uh, he became less of a a priority. He remained a person of interest, which is what we know we call somebody we were interested in right up till probably till the end, until we started getting more suspects, I guess. So he just reclassified to a lower priority. Basically, the way He went from an A to maybe a B minus, and he wasn't worth the time anymore. As
0: 1984 came to a close, the task force continued to input data. Here's another recording from Detective Dave Reichert on the day in the life of the lead detective of the GRK task force. Extentry
1: 21385 to 1130 hours. I again worked on dictation of the master follow up. I reviewed a letter from sheriff thomas to the fbi requesting their assistance in processing some of our evidence and i completed the rough outline from the detectives meeting held on 26 of 85.
0: these entries struck me as being so hopeless so overwhelming between the quality of the tape and the content i felt like i was listening to the last recording logs in a sci-fi movie where the astronaut is lost in space and all is lost The detective wasn't just drowning in tips, but also the pressure of an unimaginable investigation and the sheer number of domestic violence calls against women that needed attention and all the files that still needed to be entered into the computer so they could finally see connections in the case. But one entry caught my attention, an offer of help from the most unlikely source.
1: Also, during this period of time, I received and reviewed a letter written by Ted Bundy.
0: Next time on The Shadow Girls, an interview with one of the most prolific serial killers who was offering his assistance as a serial killer consultant.
7: Do you think it's possible that this guy could stop? No. No, Well, unless he got, you know, filled with the Holy
5: Spirit. In a very real way, uh, he's either moved,
7: he's either dead, or he's either doing something very different.
0: The Shadow Girls is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Our producer is Brandon Morgan. We're executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Asorio. Our post-production supervisor is Casey Wayland. Supervising sound editor Victoria Cheng. Edited by Michael Dean Wilkins.